It is good to be here with you this morning. Um, it is always a delight to be here and to be a part of what's going on at Myrtle Grove. Um, as Naomi said, this is our sending church. It's where we're from. Uh, we've uh, been here for about 10 years altogether now, but the last half of those we've been away. So there's a lot of faces here that we don't recognize, and it's nice to uh, to be here long enough to get to know you. Normally when we come into town, it's just for a week or two and shake hands, give a hug, and now we're gone. But we're here a little longer, so hopefully we'll be able to get to know more of you uh, while we're here. So feel free to, to talk to us about anything, especially missions. And of course, uh, Dan, who just uh, prayed earlier, is also a missionary with Timothy too. One of those 24, um, we are astounded by how God has, has nurtured and grown this ministry. Uh, we do have around two dozen missionaries from a dozen different countries serving in about 40 different nations. And we have invitations to serve in many more. We just need more people to go out and meet that need. As Jesus said, their labors are indeed few and we're experiencing that. But in the context of this ministry, last month, I left Wilmington to go to Asia and left Rissa and our boys behind. It's always hard to do that, but it was especially hard this time because we had been watching on the news and there was this thing out in the ocean and Rissa and I talked about it and prayed about it and it didn't seem like it was going to be that strong or that it was going to hit Wilmington. So we decided, yeah, go ahead and go. I already had the trip planned, so we agreed that I should go. But when I landed in Asia, it takes about a day and a half or two days to get there. When I finally got there and started looking at the news reports from Wilmington, I was stunned. It was a serious storm, and it was taking direct aim at Wilmington. And to top it off, I have a personality that demands control. <laughs> I'm working on that, and, and, I, and I think God used this as a, as a powerful tool to help me work on that. But I've never felt so out of control. I was literally on a map as far away as humanly possible from my responsibility, I feel, my wife, my children, my family. I was as far away as possible from them, and that was tough. And so I was compelled to trust God for their safety. I had no other choice, and so he's working on me in that regard. But at the same time, I had to do the work that I was called there for, right? It wouldn't make any sense for me just to sit there and be concerned about my family. So I had to carry on with that work. And it seemed like more so than usual, the, the weather was hot, the tin building was, was sweltering where we were meeting all day every day, me and a, a group of precious pastors. And I was working through an interpreter. It was, it was more difficult for some reason. This time his English was so heavily accented. He understood my English well enough to speak to the participants. But when they had a comment or a question for me and he translated it into English, I was struggling so much to understand. And I even ate foods that for me were really odd. I, I have learned long ago there's one thing you never do, and I did it this time. I'm sitting at this table with these pastors, and we're eating, and I say, what is this? <laughs> I know better. And when the answer came back, fish intestines, I was reminded why I don't ask that question. But all the while, all the while through all of this, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling not to be distracted because I missed my family and was so concerned about what was going on here. 
And there's been countless other times over these last several years when I've had to leave the safety and security of home, whether that's in Wilmington or Africa or Manila. And I've had to leave and go into places where sometimes there's no electricity, sometimes we have to gather water in a bucket. And I've done that many times. And, and I'm not saying that what I do is, is all that much different from what a lot of people do. It's just that I know my story better than I know anyone else's. But I'm sure that there are plenty of others, many sitting right here in this room, that do far more incredible things for the cause of Christ and the expansion of the gospel. So why is the question? Why do I do what I do? Why do these other people, why do we all do what we do for the cause of Christ? Well, my message today, which is not on the screen, but it's on your bulletin, I think the answer is this, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the resurrection that fuels the Great Commission. And I would argue it's the resurrection that fuels us, our lives as Christians. Because Jesus rose from the grave, because he conquered death and hell, and because he's the first fruits of many who will rise one day, you and me, I'm compelled to obey, to serve, and to follow him wherever he might lead, no matter what the cost or consequence, just because he lives. And that's the motivator, that's what is fueling your life as a Christian and mine as well. And I believe that's what compelled the Apostle Paul. And so I'm continuing in the series that we've been working through in the book of Acts, and I'll be speaking today on Acts chapter 25. Stacy always does the legwork. We apparently have two different printings of a pew Bible, and he normally uh, does the research to find out what page that, so that he can share those page numbers with you. I didn't do that. But I will tell you this, if you can find Acts 24, Acts 25 is right behind it. Just turn the page. So, out of honor for God's word, I would ask you if you're able to rise and turn with me to Acts chapter 25. And I'm also reading from the ESV. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you yourself know well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But there's not, if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, said, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. 
And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it's not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding him. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are ever grateful that you have preserved for us your word to us. And we pray that in its reading and hearing today, that we are, our spirits are attuned to you, to hear from you what you would have us to say. I ask that we would be humble listeners of your word because you promised to give grace to the humble. And we need your grace. We rely on your grace. We rest in your grace. And so now, set me aside, Father, and speak through me. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. So Paul had been in prison for a couple of years. After his trial before Felix, which we heard about last week. Now, Felix had been born a slave. He was set free by the emperor Claudius. And he was apparently not a very good ruler. He was cruel, he was greedy, and he poorly managed Judea. And so the Jews were not happy with him, and they, they petitioned several times to the emperor to, re, to replace Felix or to take him out. And so that's what we're seeing happen here. Felix was removed, and the emperor sent Festus to be the new governor. Well, first Festus goes to Jerusalem. That's the main, uh, the main population center of the region. And he was just there for a few days. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews, we see, they come to make their case before Paul. Now remember, it's been two years. Their fervor had still not waned. They had not given up and said, well, that's a done deal. They continued to be passionate about this. That tells us something about how long 
uh, bitterness and anger can fester, doesn't it? It also tells us something about the intensity of the enemy's objection against the proclamation of the gospel. Now, they wanted Paul to come to Jerusalem so that they could ambush him and kill him. That was their plan. But Festus said, no, I'm going to where he is. Why don't you come along with me? And so that's what happened. They get to Caesarea where Paul is being held. And you do notice that immediately, the very next day, uh, Festus has Paul brought before the, the tribunal, it probably says in your Bible. Literally, that means the judgment seat. This would be where he would sit, the governor would sit in his official capacity as an arbiter of, of cases uh, dealing with uh, the law and that kind of thing. So this was a formal, uh, formal meeting, formal uh, approach. And that's when the Jewish leaders make their case against Paul. But we read in verse 7 many serious charges that they could not prove. They were just throwing out anything, hoping something was going to stick. So Paul eventually appeals to Caesar. That was his right as a Roman soldier, a Roman citizen. And shortly after this now, in the narrative we just saw, King Agrippa shows up with Bernice. Bernice is a woman of somewhat dubious character, much like Felix's wife, Drusilla, which we heard about last week. Bernice had been married to her uncle, and when he died, she started a, a relationship with Agrippa, who was her brother. And so she is also not the most noble example in our story here. So they arrive and they hear about Paul. Well, Festus brings Paul before the king in this audience hall, and Luke writes, with great pomp, so that they could examine him. They need to know what they're going to charge him with. If he appeals to Caesar, he's going to go to Caesar, and they have to have some kind of charge to present to Caesar when he gets there. And so that brings us to verse 19, which I think is the crux of this passage and really of these whole, uh, the whole trial narrative of the last several chapters of Acts. And I would argue it's the crux of Paul's theology, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In verse 19, literally in the Greek, it says, uh, Paul's talking about this certain dead man, Jesus, who Paul claims to be alive. I want us to be careful not too quickly to elevate Paul to super-Christian status. He was, no doubt, but he was also human. Um, Romans 7, um, around verse 15 or so, we have a discussion uh, that, that scholars have debated what it means, but for me it's pretty clear. He's writing in the present tense, and he says, I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I do want to do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I think what we're seeing there is Paul's human, and that's my point here. I don't want us too quickly to think that Paul just strides into these situations ready to, to take whatever he's got coming. Remember, um, Paul's had some rough experiences in the past when he goes into city after city. So I think the Gaithers, if you remember the song, I think they might have got it just a little bit wrong. All fear is not gone. Ideally, yes, and we can talk in abstract terms about that, but where the rubber meets the road in, a, in the reality, there are often times that fear still creeps into the corners of our mind. I confess, as a matter of fact, if you read my newsletter, I confessed in there, I confess that there was some genuine fear in my heart for my family when I was in Asia, and they were sitting in the eye of that storm or in the target of that storm. And so when Paul says things like he does in verse 11, when he says, I don't seek to escape death, or when we understand that he's willing to stay in custody or stay in chains, one doesn't do that without confronting some serious 
challenges from the flesh. The flesh doesn't want to make those kind of commitments. I've shared from this very pulpit some of my story and told you that I can relate to some of what Paul is talking about here. Though for far less noble reasons, I know what it's like to be in chains. And the thought of staying there for the sake of the gospel is a profoundly moving thought. So why did Paul do it? Because Jesus is alive. He's not a dead hero. He's not an inspiring martyr. He's not even God alone. Now, he's holy God, of course, but he's also holy man. And if he were God alone and not man, we wouldn't necessarily be surprised that he's powerful. Power kind of comes with our idea of what it means to be God, to mean to be a divinity. But what's unique to Christianity is that we focus both on the transcendence of God and his eminence, on his power, and also the fact that he has a personal relationship with us. And in that context, as a person, as a man, he died. But then, because he's holy God, he rose from the dead. Beloved, he's not dead, he's alive. And that's at the crux of everything we believe. That's at the crux of everything we do. And that knowledge, that conviction, is what compels Paul to challenge his flesh, to reject the temptation that he might have to save his own life and to disregard his fear. And so there are three truths I want us to see from this idea of the power of the resurrection. First, because of the resurrection, we can be confident. Second, because of the resurrection, we can be bold. And third, because of the resurrection, we can be reckless in our mission for the gospel. So first, because of the resurrection, we can be confident. And when I say confident, I mean the opposite of doubt. We can be sure. As when they brought false charges against Paul or against Andrew Brunson, who we just have been following and we just heard last week was finally released, also after spending about two years imprisoned under false charges. Our faith is rooted in the reality of the resurrection of Christ. That verse 19, the the, the Greek is clear. Festus is scornfully deriding what Paul believes. He's saying, "This, this dead man Jesus, Paul thinks he's alive. He's mocking him. In India, a good friend of mine and a fellow Timothy II missionary, his name is Raj, he recently had to bury a friend, a pastor, who had been murdered by people who uh, oppose the Christian faith in northern India. And Raj is facing constant persecution from people who would do him harm and hurt others in the area. In Oringa, the, the, the group in Uganda that Myrtle Grove has adopted now for 20 years, Ellie, one of the leaders and, and others, they're often challenging and debating with the, with the Muslims and talking about them and, and they're confronted and they're mocked. At one point seven years or so ago, Ellie's house was actually burned to the ground, presumably by someone who opposed his role in the church. And Myrtle Grove played a big part in rebuilding his home. In Myanmar, or Burma, where I spend a lot of my time, I hear lots of stories about churches that are padlocked by a hostile government. They just come up and they put locks on the doors and they say, if you take that lock off, 
you're going to jail, or worse, it's still one of those countries where people just routinely disappear when the government doesn't like them. And yet in all of these places, in India and Myanmar and, and Uganda, I'm always amazed at the confidence with these brothers. They know that Jesus is alive and active right there where they are. They are sure, and it's because they believe in the resurrection. And I've also been mocked. I've been with pastors and groups of pastors in places that are predominantly uh, uh, Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim, and, and a lot of times we'll gather and we'll have a meal at a table along the roadside somewhere, and, and very often the locals will come by and say something, and I'll ask my, my host or whatever, what were they saying? And there's mocks and threats that are routinely hurled at us. Paul's accusers and Raj's and Ellie's and our accusers, they're claiming that we are fools with an empty faith. They just say, we've got an empty faith. There's nothing, no substance to it. But beloved, we don't have an empty faith. We have an empty tomb. And that makes all the difference in the world. We are safe. Amen. We are safe and secure in the hands of the one who conquered death. People ask a lot of times why I go to some of the places where I go and do some of the things that I do. And I, I, I share a conviction that I've had for several years now, the man of God doing the work of God is indestructible until that work is finished. The man of God doing the work of God is indestructible until that work is finished. And do we have a clearer case anywhere than Paul? I mean, these people did everything they could to end his life and his work, right? He was beaten. He was stoned. He was left for dead. We find in a couple of chapters he gets this poisonous snake biting him on the hand, and nothing can kill him because God's not done with the work that he's doing in his life. Now, the moment he's done, you know, all bets are off. But we don't know when that's going to be. But we proceed in the, in the confidence and in the belief that if God has called us and he wants us to go there, nothing is going to stand between me getting from here to there. And that's why Paul, as his days on earth were coming to an end, could say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am confident that he is able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. You can't trust a dead Savior. You can only trust one that lives. So not only are we confident because of the resurrection, but because of it we can also be bold, brothers and sisters. When I'm faced with people that have far greater wealth or prestige or power, I can be bold. As with Paul in these chapters, he has an audience with some of the most powerful people in Jerusalem. And he's even got a view to speak to Caesar himself. Calvin says, uh, Luke writes here that, uh, that he comes into an audience hall with great pomp. Calvin says, Luke says that because he wants us to understand that Paul appeared in a great assembly before choice witnesses whose authority was great. So I want you in your mind to get a picture of this hall, this massive hall presumably, with great pomp and circumstance as we say. Now, we don't know what Paul looked like exactly, but there's a second century letter that circulated among the churches in which, historically, the churches believed to be pretty accurate. And uh, I found one uh, rather uh, loose paraphrase, but I think it's actually pretty close to what it says in the Greek. 
uh, it says that Paul was a bald-headed, bow-legged, short man with a big nose and an unbroken eyebrow that lay across his forehead like a dead caterpillar. Now, this is what the church believed, and to some degree, some still do. But Paul's own words tell us that what they say about me, Paul says, is that his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.10. So now, as you're envisioning this ornate hall, imagine that guy coming into the room to address the king. I was on a plane to Nepal, or in Nepal. I had already landed in Kathmandu, and I was going to a, a smaller province in the west on a commuter plane. And I sat behind a man, a very successful businessman, and we just were talking about why we were, uh, why we were in, in that area. And his ideas or his reason was grandiose and extravagant. He was going to, wanting to build a hotel and employ people and make lots of money. And at first I was overwhelmed, and then I was reminded of the difference, the, the vast chasm between worldly value and eternal value. And so the Spirit prompted me to tell him why I was there. At first he was incredulous. Uh, he said, the only foreigners I ever know that come out here are either on a pilgrimage, because we were going to the place that was the birthplace of Buddha. Uh, either they're on a spiritual pilgrimage or uh, they're thrill seekers. It's the Himalayas. He said, those are the only people that come out here. And when he learned that I was going to an impoverished village at the foothills of the Himalayas to meet with a group of, of poor pastors who represent a tiny sliver of the people. In, in Nepal, 0.45% of the people are Christian. 0.45. He didn't understand why I would do that, but then he said something like, well, they need hope. I guess they need hope. And the Spirit of God emboldened me to give him an understanding of what hope I would be offering what hope I was talking about, the hope of the resurrected Lord. That doesn't come naturally. That boldness comes when you have a belief and a sureness and a confidence that Jesus is alive. Luke ends his biography of Paul with a similar comment. The very last verse in the book of Acts, he writes that Paul goes about proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Is a missionary you may have heard of through history. He's renowned. His name is David Livingstone, and he served in Africa. And he said this, If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? How often do we think... We, we, we give accolades and, and, and honor to these people that have this important post in the world's economy, in the world's system. And yet when we think that someone has been commissioned by God to serve Christ, we think they're making a sacrifice. And I'm not just talking about missionaries or pastors. I'm talking about every one of us that are called to be ambassadors of Christ. We've been called not by a king, but by the king of kings. And finally, because of the resurrection, we can be reckless. Well, not foolish, but reckless. Paul's whole ministry was pretty reckless, wasn't it? And by reckless, I'm defining that to mean that you're indifferent. You don't care about the consequences. You're going forward. 
As we've seen over the past weeks, it was always going to be rough for Paul when he entered the city. And he knew that going in. And that's why I said he, if he didn't have that confidence, he wouldn't have gone into these places where he knew that he was going to be met with hostilities. But when we're confronted with potential costs or circumstances that are, from a worldly perspective, might seem to be foolhardy, but if we do them for Christ, they could be eternally wise. I've shared this story before, but I think it bears repeating in this context. Uh, uh, early, early with Timothy II, one of the first places I went was to uh, Mindanao in the southern Philippines. And that province, uh, the Philippines are a Roman Catholic nation, um, largely, uh, probably 95% Catholic. But the island of Mindanao has been basically given over to the Muslims. Uh, they have an independent uh, government now. They run the province. It's, it's theirs. And they have several groups there that are uh, involved in terrorism and that kind of thing. Shortly before I had gone, a couple of years before I had gone, uh, two missionaries from new tribes, you may have heard of Martin and Gracie Burnham, had been there serving and were taken hostage and were kept in, in captivity for a year. In the escape, in the, when they were being saved by the military, Martin was killed, Grace, Gracie survived. But I found myself going to the same place where that happened and where they were. And when I get off the plane, my host takes me very quickly, quickly to this van that's got tinted windows and he says, okay, crawl in the back and duck down. I said, why? He says, because if they see you, they'll take you. <laughs> And so for the next two hours, I'm bouncing up this road into the mountains, into the inner parts of the island of Mindanao, because I believe that the man of God doing the work of God is indestructible until that work is finished. John MacArthur says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in the history of the world. Tim Keller takes it even further. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like what he teaches, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Or we could take Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, when he said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Think about that. If Christ is not raised, you're still in your sins, folks. And that's because the resurrection is confirmation. It's evidence that the sacrifice is acceptable. He died for our sins. Matter of fact, Paul says in, in uh, Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered for our offenses, but he was raised again for our justification. He died for our sins. The resurrection is saying, paid in full, I accept the payment. You are now justified. You are at peace with God. And Paul again says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, we are to be the most pitied if our hope is in this life only. So because of the resurrection, if you know him, you can be confident and bold and even reckless. But brothers and sisters, because of the resurrection, you must be. The one who purchased you with his own blood demands as much. He doesn't ask for our sum or even our most. 
He commands our all. And how could we give anything less? Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, so that those who live might not might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He purchased you and me with his blood so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. So what does that look like? How do we, how do we live that out? Well, maybe right now your life is, is in a place of doubt or hopelessness, despite your relationship with Christ. Maybe, as Naomi alluded to, maybe you come through some, uh, something with the, from the storm where, where you just feel unsettled and uneasy. Take comfort and rest in this. He lives. You can be confident in your, in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe there's a situation at work or in the neighborhood where you, you've been fearful of sharing the gospel truth with someone. Find strength in this. He lives. Be bold. Maybe there's a call on your life. Maybe for your time, your talent, your money. That you resist because it seems reckless. Now, is it reckless in this life, but of eternal value? Remember, Stacy said that, that Paul didn't have a happy ending in this life. There's no happy endings in Paul's story until he gets to the next life. So when you're, when you're processing whatever it is, is it reckless in this life, but of eternal value? Or is it just stupid? If it's just stupid, don't do it. But if you're holding on tightly to your lifestyle, your money, your reputation in this world, even your life, because that's what you value? Remember, God owns all of that, too. Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China, said, if I had 1,000 lives, I'd give them all for China. Because he loved the people of China that much and wanted them to know Jesus. So I ask you today, if you had a thousand lives or a million dollars, what would you give them for? What do you value? Remember, it's all His. And if He asks you to do something with it, whatever that something might be, remember, He lives. You can be reckless in your mission for the cause of Christ. So be confident in your hope because he lives. Be bold in all of your encounters because he lives. Be reckless for the cause of Christ because, beloved, he lives. And that's the power of the resurrection. And that's our motivation to carry the gospel to the world that the world might know our Savior as their own. Amen.